self-driving transportation will be widely deployed at some point in the future. How far off is that future? There are widely varying estimations. Maybe you will summon a self-driving Uber in New York within five years, or maybe it will take 20 years to work out all of the challenges in legal and engineering. Between now and that self-driving future, there will be a long span of time where cars are semi-autonomous. Maybe your car is allowed to drive itself in certain areas of the city. Maybe your car can theoretically drive itself in 99% of conditions, but the law requires you to be behind the wheel until the algorithms get just a little bit better. While we wait for self-driving to be widely deployed to consumers, a lot could change in the market. We know about Uber, Lyft, Waymo, Tesla, and Cruise, which is owned by GM. But what about the classic car companies like Ford, Mercedes-Benz, and Volkswagen? These companies are great at making cars, and they've been doing so for 50 years, 100 years. They've hired teams of engineers to work on self-driving. There's also a large volume of companies that are springing up that can offer software and other technology solutions to these big old car companies. Self-driving functionality is not the only piece of software that you need to compete as a transportation company. You also need to build a marketplace for your autonomous vehicles because in the future, far fewer people will want to own a car. Consumers will want to use transportation as a service. RideOS is a company that is building fleet management and navigation software. If you run a company that is building autonomous cars, you need to solve the problem of making an autonomous, safe robot that can drive you around. Building an autonomous car is really hard, but to go to market as a next-generation transportation company, you also need fleet management software. So you can deploy your cars in an Uber-like transportation system. You also need navigation software so that your cars know how to drive around. Ride OS lets a car company like Ford focus on building cars by providing a set of SDKs and cloud services for managing and navigating fleets of cars. Rohan Paranjpe joins today's show to talk about the world of self-driving cars and what the world will look like as we get towards the self-driving car. Rohan worked at Tesla and Uber before joining Ride OS, so he has a well-informed perspective on a few directions the self-driving car market might go in. It was great to talk to him, and I think you'll enjoy this episode as well. Rohan Paranjpe, you are an engineer at Ride OS. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You've worked at Tesla and Uber and now Ride OS. Ride OS is a company building some technology in the automotive space. Tell me about your experience building car technology and tell me about some uncommon beliefs that you've developed about the future of cars. Sure. So when I was at Tesla, I worked on a team called Autopilot Maps. We were basically taking GPS data from the cars and building these things called splines that allowed the autopilot vehicles to actually drive on them when vision wasn't available or when conditions were bad. So I worked a little bit on the firmware, but I also worked a lot on the back end and actually doing the data collect, working with how to integrate GPS data and probe data with base map data from providers like OpenStreetMap. 
So I've had some experience, especially in the backend services for providing mapping and routing for vehicles. Uh, I worked on the routing engine at Uber that powered Uber Pool, Uber Eats, and a bunch of different services that relied on accurate ETAs and routing decisions. So one of the big things I kind of realized as I was working at both of these companies is that a lot of the mapping uh, mapping tech stack and services are being built from the ground up every single time. And I realized that a lot of this could be a separate kind of horizontal layer and that if we're going to deploy autonomous vehicles quickly, safely, and more efficiently, that would be in our best interest to have kind of one place where new companies can start up and once they want to start deploying fleet technologies, they can you know, talk to one place or one company to, to get that going and get the ball rolling. One of the big things that I've sort of realized also in, in addition to this is that I think the ride-sharing model is going to take off in a pretty spectacular form. I think it already has with regular cars, but I think a lot of us still are assuming that we will own self-driving vehicles in the same way that we own, you know, like our normal cars at home. Uh, I think this is going to be not, or I don't think this is necessarily going to be the case. So for example, we have a lot of different kind of requirements for our own personal vehicles, right? So for example, we expect our vehicle to take us not just within like one city. Uh, for example, like I, I expect my vehicle to be able to drive, or I expect to be able to drive my vehicle around San Francisco, but I also expect to be able to take it to the South Bay. I expect to, I expect to be able to take it to LA as well. I don't think that the 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 kind of future we're headed into will will be set up in such a way. So, for example, what I do actually think is that there will be multiple fleets that handle different use cases separately. So I might take one transportation service for getting around in and out of San Francisco. I might take another one for getting to all the way to LA, kind of like a Hyperloop or, 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 automatic, or automatic bus service that just drives on the highways. Um, and I might take something completely different for getting to the South Bay or maybe someplace like an hour away. There's a lot there. Let's start with what you said about working on navigation and mapping software at a couple different places. From the software engineering standpoint, what are the difficult problems there? Is it data gathering, data engineering, data integration, data pipelines? Give me some of the engineering stack of that challenge. Sure. So I can dive a little bit more into the engineering challenges that come with routing. So from a from a, a technical perspective, routing has been kind of more or less solved for the last, I'd say, 50, 60 years with the invention of like the like Dijkstra's algorithm. That's more or less what we use even today to solve every routing problem you see. It's a little bit adjusted. We use heuristics and, and different methods to you know guide the search and, and make sure we're not exploring parts of the graph that we definitely don't need to. But more or less, it works the same way, where you start, you start a search from either the origin or destination, sometimes both, and you expand out your search until you reach some termination condition. So the kind of the big technical challenges come with more specific use cases, like do you want, do you want extremely low latency routes or do you want more flexible routes and, and kind of figuring out how to balance these, balance these two requirements. So for example, there's an open, open source software module called OSRM, Open Source Routing Machine, which is built heavily for the use case of extremely fast, low latency routes, but at the cost of uh, you know, not being able to really have as much flexibility as you might if you, 
if you didn't pre-process the graph as much. So the way OSRM works basically is by taking some base map data, usually usually from something like OpenStreetMap, and then heavily pre-processing it, basically finding a bunch of shortcuts and, and culling edges that don't need to be uh, used in the final graph and, and adding a lot of shortcut edges in to make graph searches extremely fast and extremely efficient. But there's a problem here because when you want to add something like real-time traffic, you can't do so very easily uh, without having to pre-process the entire graph again. And for graphs that are the size of something like North America, this can take upwards of 20-30 minutes. And you can see how that might be an issue, right, where uh, if you take 30 minutes to pre-process your graph, then your traffic is going to be obviously out of date. So one of the big technical challenges is figuring out how to do you know, real-time pre-processing while keeping, while keeping latency low. So there are a couple of different ways you can approach the problem, and there are a couple of different techniques you can use. One pretty common one is uh, basically partitioning the graph into various cells and being able to intelligently figure out which cells need updates based on the traffic signal you get in, and uh, only having to pre-process like per- particular sections of the graph, and then and then creating shortcut edges a- across like boundary nodes in every cell, and then doing kind of a overlay routing. So if you want to route from here to uh, LA, for example, you might use your cell to get out, and then you route cell to cell, and until you get back to uh, until you get into LA, and then you kind of dive in and figure out the individual routes inside and you use the cached shortest paths uh, between cell boundaries as you move along from from a, a SF to LA, for example. You've given a perspective that you said that these mapping pieces of software have gotten rewritten from scratch a number of times. Today we use Google Maps for lots of our navigation. Like I use Google Maps for for most of my navigation in the physical world, but I have noticed lots of mapping startups that are still getting started. What are the opportunities in mapping? Are these companies that are competing on redundant feature sets or are there is there a green field of opportunities in mapping that I wouldn't know unless I was taking a, a good hard look at this space? Yeah, it's a great question. So from the outside, it does seem like Google Maps would offer pretty much anything you need. Um, and for most use cases regarding navigation for human drivers, I would say that's that's more or less, uh, that, that can be accurate. I think the problem comes down to when the vehicles or even just the agents you're routing around have specific maps they work off of, or they have extremely limited capabilities. So for example, if you're a Navy company, and you want to come up with some fixed route or even a set of like dynamic routes to pick from for a vehicle to traverse on. You could ask Google for a path from origin to destination, but Google's Google Maps uh, route is specifically built for humans. So the route that, Google's, that, that Google gives you might actually end up being pretty untraversable in a lot of locations for an autonomous vehicle. For example, there might be restrictions around what kind of maneuvers your vehicle can make. There might be restrictions around what kinds of roads your vehicle can go on. So there's, for for an AV company, there's a big kind of uh, incentive to figure out mapping and routing technology for your autonomous vehicle in particular, given the kind of capabilities uh, your vehicle has. At this point, actually, a lot of this is sometimes even manually done. So an autonomous vehicle might be driving along a route and there's a Literally, like a teleoperator, who if if the vehicle has to shut down, 
we'll go and manually you know draw another route for the vehicle to follow so actually having you know solid fleet routing technology is extremely useful and extremely beneficial in helping like scale up from not just having one or two autonomous vehicles on the road, but dozens and then eventually hundreds and thousands. There's a lot also to do with lane level routing, which is something that Google Maps by itself doesn't offer exactly. This would be around solving problems like, well, you know, even though even though technically a car could maybe turn right onto a street and then within 500 feet go into the far left lane to make a left turn transition, my, the capabilities of my AV are limited and I can make that many transitions safely uh, without endangering either the safety of somebody somebody walking around or, or, or the person in the vehicle or the vehicle itself. So having or being able to kind of think about the graph and the road network at the lane level and being able to characterize transitions that happen to the lane level can be really, really useful for being able to come up with optimal and, and honestly sometimes just traversable or safe routes for a lot of these autonomous vehicles. Is that more of a real-time challenge? If I'm trying to figure out what lanes I should be in, that seems more contextual based on what other cars are on the road around me. Sure. So there's, I would break the problem down into kind of two two separate things. So one is the, you know, like some fleet intelligence is giving you, is giving you the lane transitions to make. And so that might not be as granular as like in, in 10 feet, you know, go into the middle lane and then 15 feet later, go back into the right lane. I would say, I would, I would agree with you that there, that's more of like a hyper-local decision. But at a, at a more global level, if uh, let's say it was impossible for your vehicle to make three lane transitions to get into the far left lane and then get into a place to make a left turn, you shouldn't have routed the vehicle there in the first place. That's a decision that we could have prevented you from making had we known that earlier. So that's not something that you can use, you know, like hyper-local uh, routing for in the sense that like even even if um, you're able to understand that your vehicle needs to make those transitions, you just may be, you, you may not be able to make those transitions as, as safely or as quickly as you'd want to. The fleet question that always comes to my mind is how much is it winner take all? It, what are the economies of scale, or does it make sense to have smaller distributions of fleets? Do you think these are going to be large set, like large companies, like just a duopoly, kind of like it is with Uber and Lyft today, or do you think it's going to be a multitude of different players, like you have with taxi companies in New York, where there's a, a wide variety of different taxi companies? Yeah. So. For a while, I would have probably thought that this is definitely going to be, you know, kind of a monopoly or a centralized sort of thing. Like Uber is just going to take over, Lyft is going to take over, or maybe they'll both be there. I think from what I've been seeing, uh, the number of various modes of transportation and fleets that already exist, especially in urban centers and outside of urban centers as well, but are increasing a lot. I, I do think I do think it's going to be more like taxi cab companies in that sense. Even just thinking about the ways that I get around this city, you know, yeah, I could take an Uber, I could take a Lyft, but there's also transit. Governmental authorities are definitely going to want to get into autonomous buses. There's things like Scoot. There's things like Bird. There's three or four different, I think, scooting scooter companies, not, not, not a like Vespa style or electric scooters, but the, uh, the ones you used to, the ones you drive on or the ones you kind of stand up on. I think the number of Maybe it's because the, 
actual vehicle types are so different or vastly different between between each you know kind of fleet that it's in a company's best interest to focus on one or two different vehicle types and and focus on the challenges that come around routing and and uh, fleet management for those vehicle types instead of trying to take over everything. So at least that's what I've seen in the Bay Area, right? And you can maybe add some color to that as well, having lived here. Yeah, I think I agree with what you say. Another thing I think about sometimes, and I don't know if, if you want to comment on this, but the degree to which Uber and Lyft have moats. So, you know, as we've seen so with Austin. So you and I both lived in Austin for a time. I don't know if you saw, but there was a time when, when Austin banned Uber and Lyft, and then it was like overnight, three or four ride-sharing companies with janky software were all stood up, and I used some of them, and they weren't great, but for the most part, they actually did the job of Uber and Lyft pretty well. And it, right. <laughs> it, it sort of made me wonder, like, what do Uber and Lyft have that is proprietary, that is a defensible moat that a company like Waymo would not be able to, you know, subsidize away if they wanted to. Like if Waymo decided we're going to get into ride sharing today, it seems like they could just stand up Waymo ride sharing, subsidize it more aggressively than Uber and Lyft do, take the market of all the drivers and then make the economics work if the economics can work today. I don't know. What do you think about that hypothesis? So I would argue that I think getting to an Uber or a Lyft scale takes quite a bit of engineering effort. It's, it's one thing to set up a ride-hailing service in one city at a time, but setting it up across like hundreds or across countries is a completely different question. Uh, I do agree that you can get something going for sure. And that I think if Waymo, and, and I, I'm assuming that that's what they're doing in Phoenix or their next place, that they're going to start doing some sort of ride-hailing service. That's actually a place where I hope that we can even eventually partner with a company like Waymo or companies like Waymo. Instead of having them try to vertically integrate, actually being able to use RideOS as a layer in this sense to kind of have, have us handle the ride-hailing aspect, uh, the fleet management and the fleet routing aspects, which are really um, difficult problems and really different from even even what Uber and Lyft handle today. I, th- I, think, there, I think there could be a lot a lot there that yes you can you can make that argument i think for for any company right we can say like well why why can't google do this exactly and it's i think it's a matter of focus and and to some degree agility uh, if one company's focused on it and that's their entire focus versus handling a lot of things at once so perhaps the operational expertise and the pricing models or even just the infrastructure for having pricing models might be a moat for Uber and Lyft. All of the software that is filling in the blanks for building larger fleets and for building internationalization and for, you know, being able to calculate maybe the costs of taking an uh, like an autonomous small autonomous pod or an autonomous scooter versus taking a a car. Maybe that kind of software will be a moat. I think so. I think so. Be interesting to see. There's something also I was just going to mention. There's something to be said also about having kind of like a, a layer where various companies can interact with like ride hail, a ride hailing platform. And a big one is being able to share data and share things like fleet positioning. So if you actually, if you think about, for example, fleet routing versus what Uber is doing nowadays, if you're an Uber driver, you are heavily optimizing for your own profit, which is 
which is fine and that's you're incentivized to do so. So you'll position yourself in such a way that you can make the most money. But if you are if you're own, if you own a fleet of let's say self-driving cars or even even if they're not fully self-driving if they're driven by safety drivers but you're dictating where they go, there's a really big problem of how do you figure out optimal supply positioning, predictive supply positioning uh, so that you you don't have not not that you want to you know put all your vehicles in one place you actually want to be able to spread them out and increase utilization across the network like there's actual incentive for you to do things like minimizing network congestion and being able to increase utilization of all your vehicles at once now i don't notice that as much in san francisco because it seems like wherever i am the rides come pretty quickly well i guess if i take pool or if i take express pool sometimes it takes a pretty long time and that does make me think there's probably some margin to be cleaned up in terms of getting the distribution more correct there so there's also a lot with regards to the size or or the, the size of the fleet for something like a pool or for lift lines right for the most part like you're you're if you have if you have such a large fleet you'll be able to get something within you know, five or 10 minutes in, in San Francisco, for example. That doesn't actually work across the country for sure. It's not the same. And so there are lots of places where pool or line is not even available for that reason. They can't make the economics work. Yeah, or places where the urban density is more variable. That must make it much more complicated. Oh, yeah, for sure. Talking about the stack of technology in a car or in a semi-autonomous car there are fully integrated approaches to building new cars there's the tesla or apple approach where you are building the entire car and then there are less integrated approaches like comma.ai where you are tacking on an open source piece of software and hardware to your prius and then there's the waymo version which is probably somewhere in between what are the pros and cons of the different approaches to integration? I think the answer is similar to pretty much any industry. With vertical integration, you get a little bit more control from the company side on the kind of software you want to run, on the hardware specifications and requirements. You can optimize for a lot of that. I think that there is a big benefit in being able to horizontally integrate when there's like a big platform opportunity. So from our perspective, we see that as I think if companies are able to, you know, share or leverage each other's data in a reasonable fashion. So, for example, if you're if you're a smaller company, but you, you know, come onto a ride hailing platform like RideOS and you're able to leverage the insights of supply positioning or traffic data or collision data from other companies, you know, that's beneficial to you than having to do it from the ground up again. Yeah, I think in any of these cases, like there will always be companies that have already invested enough to warrant continuing the vertical stack integration. But I think the the big benefits come around when when you know you ask the question of like is it is it worth you know me trying to handle every aspect of fleet management, for example. I think a lot of these companies, uh, especially like Tesla uh, or even Waymo, are and should be focused on you know, making sure they get one vehicle able to follow a route or able to go where it needs to go well. You know, I think there's there's a lot of problems there that still need to be solved. But I think there's also similarly an equivalent number of like big problems that need to be solved when you're not just telling one vehicle where to go, but telling 
50 vehicles, how to be optimally dispatched and where to go at once in order to like, you know, minimize costs of, of uh, operations or, or be able to like do the tasks in, in an appropriate amount of time. When I talked to George Hotz from Kama, he painted a picture of the car world being much like the smartphone world in that you would get the highly integrated Apple-like, iOS-like Tesla situation versus the open source comma.ai version of the world. I think it's a very rigid mapping that he draws there, and I'm not sure how that will play out. Maybe you have some uh, some opinions on that, but I think if you could also imagine Ride OS as almost like a Windows version, where with Ride OS, I think what you're doing is it's closed source. It's like it's like AWS. I think you have some open source components, perhaps, but it's it's like AWS or it's like Windows, where you're open. Uh, you integrate with a lot of different people, but you also have secret sauce and it's it's so it's not exactly like open source it's not like android do you have a, a a mapping that you can draw between the car world and our historical examples or do you think that all of those uh those those kinds of uh, analogies are a little too much of a stretch and that this is very greenfield i think in the current environment that's that's probably accurate or at least the way you know, I'm not I'm not a fan of being compared to Windows, but that's <laughs> that's that's hey, a Windows issue. is a good operating system. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think what you what you mentioned is is uh, correct. Where the idea is, we have some some secret sauce, some ways of uh, developing our routing tech, our you know how we solve things like VRP or fleet routing. But we we want to integrate with various partners because we believe that the the data sharing. And, you know, even eventual communication between partners will be really important in the next generation transport, transportation system. So I think I like the way, you know, George Hotz mentioned it uh, in the sense of there is, you know, you, you can think of the car as almost like a smartphone and there are different components that come together in it. And we're seeing we're seeing that even with, you know, like open source frameworks like ROS, which a lot of autonomous vehicles are using to kind of manage uh, the hardware and software integration. It's kind of like a middleware set of frameworks for cars specifically. And I get, well, not cars, but just robots in particular, but it's obviously used in autonomous vehicles. I think that there's probably going to be, I mean, I guess that's that's what we hopefully would want to be, but in the cloud, right? Riot OS is like the operating system for fleet management, the operating system to make a bunch of, you know, like, it's not really an operating system in that sense, but it is like, going to be a collection of modules that you can pick and choose from to use to to route to manage your fleet software to manage your data to hopefully share data with other providers as well because if, if there's a world where we have so many fleets i think not having them be able to leverage insights and data from each other is would, would be a would be a not so great thing let's get into ride os you are building marketplace and mapping technologies for different customers who need that technology. Give me a high-level picture of the business and the problems that you're tackling today. Sure. So from a high level, we've noticed a, a lot of investment and a lot of uh, startups coming in that are working on what we, what we call kind of the lower stack of uh, next-generation transport or autonomous vehicles in particular. So a lot of companies are you know focused on making sure their one car is going correctly and, and goes to the right place. Companies that are a little bit 
a little bit about that, like uh, DeepMap, for example, are looking at problems that are related to how do we build maps from the ground up that these autonomous vehicles can use, or how do we take data from the autonomous vehicles and use that to create maps? We are operating at a slightly higher level than that. What we're thinking about is, okay, you have you have a couple vehicles on the road, and now you want them to start doing things. You want, you want to actually start making money, or you want them to go complete tasks. You want them to com- collect data. You want them to deliver packages, pick up people. How do you do so efficiently? How do you do so optimally? How do you make sure that your vehicles will actually, you know, be able to be deployed and do what you ask them to do? So simulation is a big part of what we'll eventually offer as a product and a lot of our integration partners too, right? Actually being able to see, okay, I have 10 vehicles on the road and they can operate in this limited space. Can I do anything with this? Will this actually, you know, make me money? Will this, is this a worthwhile investment for me? Because there's, yeah, and, and, and the, and kind of the, at the at the core, we have these these big like module modules like uh, ride route and ride plan, which are solving like various kinds of constraint based routing problems, as well as things like iterations of uh, problems like VRP, the vehicle routing problem. So there are so many different car related companies that could potentially want to integrate with you, but the first one that comes to mind are like legacy car companies that are very good at producing cars, manufacturing cars, getting cars on the road, like Ford and General Motors, etc. What's the integration stack for a partner like a traditional automotive manufacturer? Yeah, and, and just to be clear, I think the you're absolutely right. Like one of our big targets is going to be OEMs and even newer pure autonomous vehicle developers. Basically, the the integration stack comes down to, can we build modules for you directly on your vehicle or so in, in the form of like an SDK, or can your vehicle, you know, connect to the internet and hit one of our server-side APIs? So it's pretty simple. The integration process at this point takes like roughly, you know, two to three weeks. We usually have one or two people acting as integration engineers who actually dive into the code. And we might have to build a couple of bespoke modules that or components that can make sure that the vehicle can actually talk to our services, upload data, you know, request routes, et cetera. Well, I was just asking about the integration process. So you, as you mentioned, you have the Ride SDK, and anybody who's a software developer has worked with an SDK, like I've, I've worked on Android software before and there's an android sdk or java software and there's an android uh, java sdk and the software development kit lets you develop software that integrates with the platform so the ride sdk for cars what it how is this integrating with the car is it through the can bus or is there some other integration stack on the car i see i see so it depends to be clear i don't think our components at this point will be messaging through the CAN bus. There's not really going to be pieces that are that we're responsible for on, like, um, for example, actuating the brakes or acceleration. So even though we might integrate with a comma AI-like device, we won't perform the functions of actually sending messages on the CAN bus like comma AI might. So, for example, one one framework we can integrate with pretty well, and we have modules for, is uh, ROS. So a lot of these autonomous vehicles have 
ROS as part of their software stack and hardware stack. And so we have specific modules that they can actually just use directly. And I think we have some, some different language bindings, but they would actually integrate that way through ROS. And at this point, we're not entirely sure which other like like what other software we would integrate with directly if it's not ROS based if it's if it's bespoke or custom and we'd have to write like you know some some Java libraries we might have or, or C++ libraries we might do that but we're also trying to keep integration as much as possible to hitting our API for example so the SDK would involve like a, a collection of like ROS modules and and maybe some other custom language modules but as much as as much as we can we'd like to have the ability to host a service, an API that that you know the car can head over the internet and, and be able to get routes or whatever they might need. So as their infrastructure changes, as their software changes, it doesn't it doesn't impact our ability to you know deliver them insights. So you're more concerned about the market, the Ride Market API and the Ride Nav API. You want to be able to do things like fleet management and fleet prediction and, you know, hey, get get these cars to this area because we're predicting some demand in, in riders that's coming up at 6 p.m. And then here's the navigation software to get there. That's right. Now, there is a, a bit of, you know, for example, if a car goes offline and it needs to still follow a route, uh, we can't just not deliver the route to them right in that case uh, so we had to think about things like you know offline map caching or even route caching and and being able to you know realize that or, or, or figure out what to do in situations where network connectivity may not be so good so there's a there's a little bit of interplay there but yeah for the most part we are thinking about we're thinking about the relation in terms of you hit our api and we'll provide you insights that way stack for getting a route to a car it there's a series of steps like i think it breaks down into the ride plan and the ride route can you talk me through the process by which you generate a navigation plan and a route for a car and what's the difference between a plan and a route i think maybe the slides on our website kind of show one possible integration of like, you know, you use ride plan to get an overall plan for your fleet and then it's calling into ride route to get these individual legs. But I'd like to point out or stress that this is, you know, just one possible way of integrating. For example, if you if you did not want to think about or worry about fleet management at this point, you're just not ready or you only have one vehicle. But and so you only want to use our routing engine. We have APIs that just that just hit the routing engine with you know your vehicle specific constraints or or, or map data and or both. So ride route, for example, is just a a layer on top of our routing engine, more or less, and and any of the services that go into getting getting like a route for you know one vehicle to go from one point to another. Ride plan is more is more like you know I might have some state of the world. I have five or six vehicles. And I have some tasks for them to accomplish. For example, I have to go pick up, you know, three people and I want to minimize some custom cost function. Like I want to minimize the amount of passenger discomfort per person as much as possible. What should my overall set of routes be? So ride plan is a layer that that talks into or that communicates with all of our internal services that help calculate 
an overall like vehicle plan, not just for one vehicle, but for like dozens if, if need be. So in order to generate these routes for the cars and also to control the understanding of the market, you need to have data. So you need to get real-time data from the car fleets, the mapping data, the traffic data, and other data. You also need the the mapping data to be updated on a, on a regular basis. You, of course, have the, I know the, his, the historical example, and I guess the contemporary example as well, of these cars driving around, like the old Google cars that would drive around and to constantly take maps of the real world in order to, to create Google Maps. How do you get that data, and how does that data make its way into RideOS? For map data in particular, a lot of these autonomous vehicle companies, even OEMs that are that are experimenting, generally have some restricted set of map data that they use. So they've built some, you know, maybe even by hand some lane level data. But sometimes it'll be a little bit more like, you know, we can we can take these sorts of roads in this in this general whitelist zone, and we might use a different provider like you know, something like OSM or something else to get our base map data that way. But the the difference is that if they if they want to route on a very specific set of map data because they might need, for example, you know, exact UUIDs per for, per routable edge, then then we can actually integrate that into our software and provide them that. At the same time, they're hitting usually a an endpoint for something like vehicle positioning. So as the car is driving along, they're uploading their current GPS point. And we use techniques like map matching to actually figure out where, like given some noisy GPS profile, where the where the vehicle actually is on that map data. And we can actually use that to also construct things like traffic data. And that traffic data doesn't necessarily need to be coming from only one source. It can be coming from multiple sources, multiple providers, even, even external traffic data providers. Uh, we can use all of that to create a, a, a an actual or a realistic profile of the road. Tell me some about the, or to what degree you can talk about it, the data engineering process. So the data ingest process, the processing, the machine learning model management. What's your stack there look like? So at this point, we are not necessarily working on leveraging insights from things like, for example, the camera and being able to do, you know, like stop sign detection or collision detection and then using that as as a, you know, a signal into the routing engine. That's that's an eventual, uh, eventual piece of the pipeline. But at this point, it's more around being able to take, for example, you know, noisy GPS and construct things like speed profiles from that data. So we use things like map matching and hidden Markov model techniques to basically probabilistically figure out where the car had been most likely given some very noisy GPS trace and be able to construct you know speed profiles from that data. And are you on AWS? So like, can you tell me some of the managed services and, and the data pipeline tools that you're using? Sure, sure. We're right now using Google Cloud Provider. We're using some of the internal Google tools, Bigtable and GCS for file storage. Our entire uh, infrastructure is is using is, is using like gRPC. We're communicating uh, our communication protocol is Protobuf. Are you using Dataflow, uh, BigQuery, any of the the kind of next generation data we're using bigquery bigquery yeah but not dataflow not that i know of okay it seems like i don't know maybe this is this is just some bias from the companies i happen to have talked to but it seems like the more recent a company has started 
the more likely it is to be, and, and the more it leverages data engineering, the more likely it is to be on Google Cloud. I mean, <laughs> since you worked at Uber versus AWS, versus AWS <laughs> it seems like the newer companies or the people who have grizzled experience with AWS or experience with AWS and Google Cloud, they seem to be picking Google Cloud. Yeah, that's a good point. I've noticed that a little bit too. The tooling is, I think AWS and GCP both provide a pretty good tooling around managing you know, cloud instances and stuff. But I think that at least for a startup of our size, that GCP is generally a little bit cheaper. Don't quote me on that because I might totally be wrong. But I think, I think that's why we picked it at least from what I remember. We were actually using some some AWS tooling, and we switched over for that reason. I think there's also some... For cost? Yeah, for cost. Wow. Yeah. I think there's also some better tooling around managing like Kubernetes-related stuff on uh, GCP. But I think, I mean, I, I, honestly, like I have a feeling it has more to do with, you know, what the person in charge decides that day. Right, with this, you know, what I mean, like when when you start when you start a company like this, I look at a lot of the stuff we've built and a lot of the stuff I've built personally, and I and I think like, yeah, I could have used this or I could have used that framework, I could have used this language instead of this one, but we just did this because that's what we were used to. Yeah. So there are lots of different vehicle systems that could use this kind of technology. You have food delivery robots, you have scooter companies, you have car companies, you have drones. And by the way, I talked to Airware a while ago, and I think they're also using ROS, the robot operating system. So I guess that is pretty widely deployed. Mm-hmm. So are you focused on on any specific vertical? Are you focused, focused specifically on the car vertical right now? Or do you feel like this software is is widely applicable to food delivery robots and drones and so on? Yeah, I think we're probably a little bit more focused on the autonomous vehicle vertical just at this point because of our uh, industry experience. But yeah, you've that's a good insight. Like all of the stuff that we are working on is, I think, uh, widely applicable to non-AV uh, use cases as well. And I think that the, the actual, the type of problem from a technical perspective really changes when that happens. So for example, you know, routing, being able to uh, establish something like an Uber pool like service or a lift line like service with some vehicles on the road is one thing. You know, you can you can solve that problem in a in a number of different ways. But when you want to say something like, okay, I have uh, 50 delivery drones. They can fly around the city and deliver packages and they need to deliver, you know, a thousand packages within some 4-hour window. There's absolutely no, you know, cost depending on if that package were to arrive earlier in the four-hour window or later, as long as it comes into the four-hour window at some point, as long as it gets delivered, that's all. That's all I care about. All I want to do is minimize, you know, the amount of traversal cost. That's actually like a fundamentally different problem, but we're also working on problems like that. So it's, it's interesting because it is widely applicable, but they're they're also like like this notion of fleet management or fleet-based routing is so wide and varied and and different for various use cases that. So it's not like you can just take, you know, Uber Pool, for example, and apply the exact same algorithm to drone delivery or, you know, scooter placement or figuring out like, you know, something even something like how how should I route my uh, yeah, how should I route my delivery bots to make sure 
you know, the food doesn't get cold, <laughs> but gets delivered on time at the same time, simultaneously. Yeah. So you're looking for the problems that are highly generalizable. So you talk about demand prediction for a car marketplace. That's That can be generalized to all car providers that want to manage fleets. You talk about navigating a car from point A to point B. That is something that is generally applicable to all all cars. If you wanted to get in the food delivery business, you would probably have to figure out all of the data points for a given restaurant. Like we did a show with DoorDash recently, and they have all these different factors for matching a you know, a delivery person with a potential order that's in the queue, and it takes into account like the restaurant and how long the food takes to make at the restaurant and all of these domain-specific signals. So it's not like you'd just be able to port the Ride OS software easily to solve all of DoorDash's problems. It isn't necessarily... I think the the problems that we're solving with vehicles don't necessarily... or Sorry, cars don't necessarily map exactly to to the ones with DoorDash or food delivery. But I do think that they all are encompassed by fleet management. And this is what I guess I mean by like the kinds of problems we're focusing on are not necessarily only limited to routing vehicles around. I think when you when you have any system where you are taking part of the autonomy that was, you know, agent driven, where for example, if you if you have cars that are driven by humans that have their own desires, their own wants, that's a very different thing than if you have, you know, delivery bots or a swarm of vehicles going about and uh accomplishing a bunch of tasks. There's a whole host of new problems that come with just how do you, you know, how do you optimally route a fleet, not just how do you optimally route a car and and abstract away any notion of, you know, fleet data in that case. So if you're working with a variety of OEMs, you can potentially leverage the data from all of those different OEMs if they're willing to to share it with you. Is there any concern from the OEMs that this, I, I think the optimistic case from the OEM's perspective would be that we're going to get to take part in this data sharing, this economies of scale, and we're going to benefit from the data of the other OEMs if we give our data. But the, the more pessimistic view might be, well, if we control enough of the market, we don't want to be giving away that data because then we're giving a competitive advantage to other people. What's the conversation around the data sharing and the economies of scale of the data with the OEMs? I think that actually OEMs are not as adverse to data sharing as we might have I might have initially thought too. A lot of them already do something similar with like companies based around traffic ingestion like uh, Inrix or TomTom where the contracts generally go around like I'll share data with you if you, you know, use that to make the traffic data better. I think OEMs are more you know, it would be one thing for example if we said we're going to take your data and you know anybody any other any other client on our platform can see where this data is coming from and who it belongs to and and use it however they'd like i think that would be one that would be something that they'd probably be a little bit adverse to but if we approach it from the standpoint of you know your data is going to help make the system overall much much better and um, you know by contributing you also get access to a number of different companies' data, and and it and comes, you know, in in terms of like you don't see or they don't see who's providing the data. You you just benefit from the insights. You know, oh, you you happen to your your car happened to detect a collision, you know, somewhere, and so you know everyone got to notice at the same time, or everyone got to see at the same time that like 
there's a collision there and, and routes automatically kind of route around around that collision, for example. I think being able to frame it in terms of your data is going to remain private, yet you can all benefit from the insights are is a, is a really important or a really, it's a conversation that OEMs are willing to have and are looking forward to. <laughs> so we've mostly sidestepped the conversation around autonomy, but I would love to close with getting your perspective on where we are in the journey towards autonomy and what are the, the big signals that you're looking for or the big check marks in the timeline that you think will be significant milestones towards signaling that we are making progress on autonomy? Yeah, I think one of the one of the big things is also not just cars being able to drive in the city and then drive in pretty difficult circumstances, but also getting governmental support. Um, being able to have, you know, like a city say, you know what, Lyfts or Ubers or, or Waymo, you, you can start driving all throughout this one area. This may not even happen, by the way, just in the U.S. There, there's a lot of uh, international interest in, in getting cities up and running with autonomous vehicles. A lot of cities are also thinking about how to do things like launching autonomous bus services or figuring out what, what are the costs and impacts uh, or benefits of uh, you know, having like established autonomous lanes. I think when there's a, also a good amount of governmental or city or public interest in the sense of, you know, cities investing in things like autonomous lanes, like basically infrastructure for autonomous vehicles, that'll be a big turning point, in my opinion. That might take some time. I also think, for example, that we won't be in a place where there's going to be fully level five autonomous vehicles for some time. I think we should be, you know, or or we'll, we'll probably be you know, in level four vehicles for, for a good number of years while, you know, data collection improves, while the algorithms improve around making sure people are safe and that, and that in general people are comfortable with the idea of autonomous vehicles roaming around. Because I think the, one of the big things at the end of the day is even if you can, even if you were to prove or show that autonomous vehicles on average are going to be safer in a lot of circumstances, on a lot of maneuvers, there has to be kind of a, a public acceptance of the fact that, you know, these, there will be situations that are unsolvable. In the same way that, like, we are now comfortable with planes being more or less fully autonomous after, after takeoff and before landing. And even if crashes happen, we are okay with autonomy because of just how much safer overall it is. I think once we, once we get, once we, I guess, have a kind of a public sense of like, this is an order of magnitude safer than it would be for a human driver. So any, any like, you know, accident that may happen, like I'm willing to take that as like that, that will happen sometimes Um, the same, but at least it's better than, you know, the 10 more crashes that would have happened if uh, humans were driving. Rohan, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. Sure. Thank you, Jeff. Wow.